Good evening, everybody. And we'll begin with chanting the refuges and precepts together. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Buddham saranam gachami, Dhammam saranam gachami, Sangam saranam gachami, Dutiyampi buddham saranam gachami, Dutiyampi dhammam saranam gachami, Dutiyampi sangam Saranam gachami, Tatiampi buddham saranam gachami, Tatiampi dhammam saranam gachami, Tatiampi sangam saranam gachami, Panatipata veramni sikapadam. Samadhi Ami Adina Dana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Abrakmacharya Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Musawada Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Sura Meraya Majapamadatana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Vikala Bojana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana, Malaganda, Vilepana, Dharana, Mandana, Vipusanatana, Veramani Sikapadam, Samadhi Ami, Ucha Sayana, Maha Sayana, Veramani Sikapadam, Samadhi Ami, Idam, me silam maga palanyana sa pachayo o tu. The title of this evening's talk is Metta, 
the heart's release. And beginning with a quote from Nelson Mandela from South Africa. No one is born hating another person because of his, the color of his skin or her skin, her background or his religion. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. And some words from the Buddha. It is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. The Buddha Dhamma, the teachings and the practices are about transforming the heart, transforming the mind. This evening we'll consider one of the important teachings and practices of this transformation, which is classically called a Brahmavihara, a divine abiding. The radiant warmth and openness of metta, unconditional loving kindness and acceptance unconditional friendship, the experience of connection and acceptance. This isn't fraught with clinging or attachment and not necessarily any sense of obligation even. This unconditional quality of the mind and the heart arise quite naturally when our mindful attention penetrates the layer of conditioning that shuts us down to others. It's also important to recognize that this capacity of metta is present when concentration and mindfulness are able to begin penetrating the layers of conditioning that one keeps one from connecting with one's own bodily and mental experience with clarity and with kindness. So beginning with an old story, it's said that the Buddha first taught metta to a group of 500 monks who went into a particular and seemingly very congenial forest for their three-month rainy season retreat, a forest that was adjacent to a village of very strong supporters who offered to build 500 huts for the monks to stay in during this rains retreat. And who were also happy to keep the monks alms bowls filled during their practice period. And the monks, so the monks moved in and they began practicing vipassana, insight meditation. It said that the Unseen beings, the forest devas who lived there became fearful of the monks and they felt quite put out of their home, their, their forest as they considered it, when they saw that the monks weren't just visiting this forest for a day or two, 
And so the forest dwelling beings began to create all kinds of frightening sounds and frightening sights and emit some very distasteful odors, hoping that, that this would make the monks leave what they considered to be their forest. Well, soon enough, the monks began, began to become quite terrified, which of course broke their concentration, broke their samadhi and disrupted their mindfulness. Some even developed fever and, and pain and dizziness in conjunction with the amount of fear that they were experiencing. And all of them felt that it was really impossible to continue practicing where they were. So they went to where the Buddha was staying and they related their tale. To which the Buddha responded, my beloved monks, go back to exactly that same forest and practice your meditation there. The monks responded to the Buddha's words by pleading that they please not be sent back to that forest again, saying it was impossible to practice there. And the Buddha's response was this. He said, dear monks, because you went there to practice meditation without a weapon of protection, you have encouraged many distractions and difficulties. This time, however, I will give you a really true weapon of protection. And it said, it was at that point that the Buddha offered them the metta practice in teachings. Well, out of their great, great respect for the Buddha, the monks didn't dare to contradict his wishes. And so armed with the metta teaching and practice, they went back to the forest and for a while continued to experience feelings of fear and anxiety. While at the same time, they very diligently and virtuously and respectfully practiced metta. Soon, there were no more fearful sights, sounds, or smells. And whereas the devas had previously been hostile towards the monks, their anger and their resentment disappeared when they began to feel the monks' metta. And in fact, feelings of respect and welcome and even reverence began to be the devas' experience, along with a sense of being connected like with family. And the inclination arose in the devas to provide an environment, <clears throat> an environment of safety, to protect the monks from the particular dangers that might be lurking in the forest so that they could practice their meditation peacefully. After recovering, strengthening, and deepening their concentration and open-hearted presence through practicing metta, it's said that all 500 monks at some point began practicing vipassana meditation again with metta as their foundation. And it's said that because they were able to practice meditation calmly and peacefully, that they all became arhants. They all became enlightened beings during that rains season, rainy season retreat. 
I'd like to read you the Metta Sutta uh, from the Buddha. It's a short sutta, and this is a translation that, uh, from the Pali that comes from the monks of the Amaravati Monastery in England. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be upright and able, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world, meaning not born again into this world of suffering. So that was one of the teachings that the Buddha offered these monks. The great strength of a mind, a heart, protected through the energy of metta. This quality, this capacity to stay present and connect with a heart that's fearless, with a heart and most subtle force in the universe. Metta is the energy that allows for and brings connection. It's the energy that keeps it all together. And this capacity is called for again and again throughout our practice, throughout our life. The practice and energetic experience of metta is offered and felt as a natural heartfelt wish directed towards oneself another particular individual, or a group of beings, wishing oneself and others to be happy, to be at ease, to be safe and secure, to be in peace. 
in the process of developing, expanding, and deepening this energy of the heart, one of the things that we begin to taste is that our own wants, our own preferences begin to pale. They are, of course, important on one level, but within this incredible, radiant energy of warmth that begins to flow from our heart in the process of cultivating unconditional friendship and acceptance, unconditional kindness and love, our personal wants and preferences begin to lose their usual intensity of almost always being very front and center. Sometimes my experience of metta, this human kindness, is like the sunshine, that warmth of the sun that permeates our outer and inner sense of being. You could say that the practice of loving kindness is akin to letting the sunshine warm our heart, letting the sunshine warm our whole being, and then at some point radiating this quality out to the world around us. So so where does the capacity to connect, cultivate, and live with unconditional friendship, unconditional acceptance and kindness, where does this come from? It comes from our own experience of kindness, the experience of receiving kindness from others. It comes from our own experience of receiving warmth, of receiving love that's been given freely to us from another. If you had never ever experienced this unconditional kindness, you would have a very, very extremely difficult time with this practice. But really, such people are really quite rare. Every one of us here in this retreat has experienced at least some kindness given to us, some love, some warmth given to us freely. So a personal example, just a very simple, ordinary experience. A couple of days before this retreat began, and this happens to me quite frequently, actually, a couple of days before this retreat began, I walked into the post office to pick up my mail. They don't deliver mail to homes here in Taos. So I did my usual. I walked into the post office to pick up my mail and someone opened the door for me. I didn't know this person. I'd never seen them before. And we looked directly at each other and we smiled with our eyes behind our masks. (laughs) And I thanked him profusely And I felt a very warm, friendly connection just blossom between us for that moment. Just that. That's unconditional kindness offered freely. And each of us, of course, have experienced kindness with people we know and with people that we're close to very likely kindness 
experienced with a more overt or maybe stronger energy than I just uh, described, that unconditional warmth of loving kindness. So this is where the seeds come from. These are the seeds that are planted in us that we cultivate. The kindness that we've been given is the kindness that we grow, that we water and fertilize, that we cultivate by giving metta to ourselves and through offering it out to others. It's a circle. It's like a transmission. We've been given the transmission through the kindness offered to us from others. We grow it, we cultivate it, and we give it out, offering the transmission back out again and again and again. It's this essential, beautiful circle. The kindness that we receive and the kindness that we give is always a gift. Every instance of unconditional loving kindness given to us involves people giving us their time, their care, their support, or in some way their help. Unconditional kindness, kindness given freely, it's a choice. It's a very natural choice that others make, that we make, and it has an effect on us, and it has an effect on others. One of the Dalai Lama's translators and interpreters, Jeffrey Hopkins, shared this. He said, during a lecture, while I was interpreting for the Dalai Lama, he said in what seemed to me to be broken English, kindness is society. I wasn't smart enough to think he was saying kindness is society. I thought that he meant kindness is important to society. Kindness is vital to society. But he was saying that kindness is so important that we cannot have society without it. Society is impossible without it. Thus, kindness is society. Society is kindness. Without concern for others, it's impossible to have society, was what the Dalai Lama was saying. Metta is really the ground, the bed, so to say, for that all of the other immeasurable, the immeasurable capacities of heart spring from, the other three divine abidings. Compassion, karuna in Pali, appreciative or empathetic joy, mudita in Pali, and equanimity, upeka in Pali. It's also the capacity of heart of mind that allows the whole breadth of our meditation practice to unfold. Metta is what engenders the quality of open-heartedness, acceptance, kindness, and patience. With each and all of these qualities being an essential ground for us throughout this practice and the process of liberation.
one of the most important aspects uh, and striking aspects actually of metta, and maybe surprisingly so for some of you, is that metta is impersonal in nature. Even in relationship to what we think of as our self, meaning what we are identified with and what we are attached to is either in a positive way or a critical way as our self. Our body, our thoughts, our ideas, our opinions, our skills, our knowledge. Metta is impersonal in nature in relationship to other beings as well. A heart, a mind that's filled with metta has the capacity to impartially embrace all beings, not only those that we're close to in our lives or those that it's easy to care about or those who might be useful or amusing or maybe pleasing to us. A heart, a mind filled with metta holds the possibility of a capacity for what can be called immeasurable impartiality. This is the capacity of being that's able to connect and care for any being, connect and care for all beings. And some words from the great Indian meditation teacher, Krishnamurti from his meditation journal. Meditation is one of the most extraordinary things. It's not an intellectual affair, but when the mind enters into the heart, the mind has quite a different quality. It's really then limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you're part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. And you must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. The heart, the mind of metta connects and accepts. It's non-critical, non-judgmental. Metta has no interest in comparing or, or fixing. It senses, sees, and knows things to be just as they are. Within the process of our practice, we're developing an inner sense of well-being, an inner sense of patience and acceptance. Metta and aversion cannot exist simultaneously. As you're practicing, in the very specific ways that each of you are during this retreat, cultivating a concentrated clarity of attention and mindfulness, and maybe also working with the practice of metta in relationship to its purifying and healing aspects. With this, you're also learning that metta practice aids the development of our capacity for a clear and strong concentrated mindful attention. When I was in China in 1986, I found out that the contemporary Chinese written character for love was developed out of two 
ancient pictographs or two ancient symbols. The top symbol was a very simple one representing a person breathing, a symbol for breath. And the bottom symbol was one for the heart. So based in ancient Chinese pictographic writing, the character for metalove is breath through the heart. With the cultivation of metta, we're moving towards or inviting the opening, the expansion of the heart, the heart-mind. And continuing with this metaphor of breath, metta is like the experience of breath moving through us. It's intangible, boundless, empty, where from, where to. And yet it's a very powerful energy that moves within us and from us. So what is it? In the text, it's often spoken of as non-ill will. The absence of ill will in relationship to ourself, meaning the absence of ill will in relationship to all of the phenomena of one's body and mind, however they're manifesting moment to moment, and the absence of ill will in relationship to others. So no aversion in any direction meaning no comparing ourselves in relationship to others, no comparison, no conceit, no pride, no self-depreciation, no self-judgment, and no judgment or depreciation of others, the absence of ill will in all directions. In retreat, maybe even in this online retreat, how often might we think of the person next to us on the screen or maybe on the other side of the screen? How often might we think that their practice is really so much better, much better than mine? Or maybe the comparing mind says, well, that person isn't practicing nearly as well as I am. I mean, look at that. I'm not moving around. Look how much they're moving around. Falling asleep, it looks like. And I'm much better than that. Felt judgment that they're better than me or, or I'm no good or I'm great. I'm just great. No sleepiness, no movement. Well, obviously, this is not metta. We're creating a separation, me and other. The heart and the mind is contracted, actually. And it's uncomfortable. If we take a look, mindfully take a look. We mindfully recognize and acknowledge when we see this, that this, too, is part of our practice. And we learn that one way to attend to the suffering of separation, the ache of self-centeredness, is to offer one's self-metta and also to offer the other person in the equation metta. As our capacity grows and blossoms, there's an unwinding, an unbinding of the heart, of the mind, from states of fear, states of anger, judgment, states of separation, disconnection. 
these strong, afflictive energies that move through the mind, the heart, and the body begin to unwind, begin to weaken, begin to fade, and even eventually to potentially dissolve under the strong medicine of the heart of metta, concentration, and mindfulness. Someone once asked the great Indian spiritual teacher, Nisargadatta Maharaj, and he pretty much always taught in dialogue. That's how he, he, he taught with, in dialogue with his students. So once uh, someone asked this teacher, this great teacher, uh, one of his students said, what is love? And Nisargadatta responded, when the sense of distinction and separation is absent, you may call it love. And then the student asked, what can make me love? And Nisargadatta Maharaj's response was this, you are love when you're not afraid. You are love when you're not afraid. Something that was amazing and really important for me when I began to discover it is that metta really doesn't necessarily depend on initially liking someone or approving of them. It actually has nothing to do with approving of. When the heart of met, with the heart of metta, we're able to connect with beings beneath what we might not agree with or connect with beings who act in ways that we might not like or might not even condone. Metta is acceptance on a very deep universal level, but not necessarily approving. There aren't any favorites, no favoring one over another with metta. So it's not divisive. Metta is a unifying energy. It brings things together. It's goodwill towards all beings, goodwill towards all sentient beings, this most subtle and powerful energy of the universe, in the universe. And so from this, we can begin to understand that, yes, it is impersonal in nature and that it's unconditional, meaning no conditions needing to be met for metta to manifest. Reflecting for just a moment, if there was no metta in this world, this world would have flown apart. It would have broken apart long ago. There have been periods throughout human history, up until this very moment, when there has been more or less metta manifesting in the world. More peaceful times, times of relative ease in the world and periods when the world has been, as it is right now, times of upheaval, upheaval, times of time of great uncertainty. This powerful energy of goodwill that unifies, that brings things together, so essentially necessary. The writer Dina Metzger said this, There are those who set fire to the world. 
we are in danger. There's no time to go slowly. There's no time not to love. And the Buddha said it so perfectly. Hatred can never cease by hatred. Only love alone can healing, only with through love alone can healing happen. This is a universal law. If metta is the ground and the basis and the impetus that our thoughts, our words, and our actions spring from, if our motivations and intentions spring from the heart of metta, the karma or kama that's created will be wholesome and healing, both personally and in ways beyond our own small lives, even in ways that we certainly may never, ever know. Somewhat early on in this COVID pandemic time that we're living in, there was an article in the news that came from Belfast, from Northern Ireland, from Northern Ireland, Belfast. And this was the article. Now remember, this happened early on in this pandemic situation. When you go out and see the empty streets, the empty stadiums, the empty train platforms, don't say to yourself, it looks like the end of the world. What you're seeing is love in action. What you're seeing in that negative space is how much we do care for each other, for our grandparents, our parents, our brothers and sisters, protecting people we will never even meet. People will lose their jobs over this. Some will lose their businesses and some will lose their lives. All the more reason to take a moment when you're out on your walk or on your way to the store or just watching the news to look at the emptiness and marvel at all of that love. Let it fill you and sustain you. It isn't the end of the world. It's the most remarkable act of global solidarity we may ever witness. In the mid-1990s, over a consecutive two-year period, I taught in Poland. The first year was for two months, and then the following year for one month. And one of the students who stayed for the whole two months of practice that first year was a man in his early 40s, a very successful big city businessman from Warsaw. He'd been diligently practicing Zen, Karate, and Aikido for about 10 years prior to coming to this two-month Vipassana Metta retreat that I was offering in Poland. He'd grown up in a home environment with a very ill-tempered, angry father and uncle, living, as he said, with his heart burning with fear much of the, through much of the, his childhood and with the fear still being present in his adult life. But much more obvious to him was the fact that he'd learned and taken on the habit of thought, words, and actions of this same 
ill temper. And he described himself as a man of heavy emotions, which was becoming more and more uncomfortable as his practice developed and deepened. Unlike his father and his uncle, he had begun to see himself much more clearly through his martial arts practices and through his interest in Buddhism and meditation practice. In being introduced to the metta teachings in practice, he found himself very, very interested and very attracted to it. At some point during our intensive two-month practice period, he decided to take on the phrase, may I love myself completely just as I am in this present moment. He decided, he decided to take it on as his practice for the whole next year after he returned home to Warsaw. Because of his Zen training, he created a kind of koan for himself by changing one word. He said he changed from may I to can I. Can I love myself completely just as I am in this present moment? He silently said this koan over and over and over again during his sitting practice, in situations at work with his employees, at home with his family, and whenever he began to feel angry or enraged. He said that very often he would remember to stop to be still for a few seconds and silently repeat the koan, even in the midst of anger, he said. And he said more and more often as the year went on, he remembered the practice just as the feelings of anger would begin to arise, which he found seemed to dissolve. The anger would dissolve very quickly when he would start repeating this koan. The next year, he came back to the retreat center to sit with me again for the one month that I was teaching in Poland. And there had been an enormous transformation in this man. He was much lighter and much happier. So now I'd like to just spend a few moments exploring some expectations of what we might think the experience of metta is supposed to be. I think that many of us expect metta to be a feeling, a a familiar felt sense. And of course, our expectation is based on something that we're already familiar with. It's actually impossible to expect to look for something that we don't know at all something that we've never experienced. Or to look for something that maybe we have experienced, but didn't label as unconditional loving kindness, didn't label as unconditional friendship, didn't label as metta. Sometimes metta manifests as a familiar felt sense, but we can get caught. We can get stuck in expecting this and it's limiting. Metta isn't sentimental. It's certainly not romantic. Both of these are conditional, very conditional experiences. 
And metta isn't even necessarily always a particularly juicy feeling. The heart, the mind, that's free from ill will, free from greed, free from fear, hatred, anger, in any given moment is the mind of stillness, the heart of peacefulness. It's in the absence of greed, in the absence of aversion, it's in the abiding stillness and peace that metta arises. And it may not be a feeling that we think of or are familiar with as love. There's a great power and strength in the capacity to connect within ourselves and in relationship to others directly, clearly, patiently, and fearlessly with a mind, a heart, free of ill will. So we could say that this is metta, this unfettered, unconditional connection. And it's not so easy to access. There are many layers of conditioning that need to be seen or seen through and let go of along the way of our practice. I found over the years that the qualities of honesty and humility are essential if practice is to continue to unfold and reap its most amazing and freeing benefits. There's a beautiful story in the Anguttara Nikaya, the story of Sariputta's lion's roar that demonstrates this really clearly. Sariputta is one of the, the Buddha's two chief disciples and was foremost in terms of discernment and wisdom next to the Buddha. This story takes place just after the completion of the three-month rainy season retreat. The monks were beginning to disperse for their various duties and responsibilities in other places. And this is the sutta, the story. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jatis Grove at Anantapindika's monastery. At that time, the Venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One. Having paid homage to him, he sat down to one side and said, Lord, I have now completed the rain's retreat at Savati and wish to leave on a country journey. And the Buddha replied, Sariputta, you may go whenever you're ready. The Venerable Sariputta then rose from his seat and bowed to the Buddha, keeping him to his right, and departed. Soon after the Venerable Sariputta had left, one monk spoke to the Buddha, saying, The Venerable Sariputta has hit me and has left on his journey without an apology. Right away, the Buddha called another monk and said, Go, monk, and call the Venerable Sariputta, saying, The Master calls you, Sariputta. The monk did as he was bidden, and the Venerable Sariputta responded, saying, Yes, friend. Then the Venerable Mahamogalana and the Venerable Ananda went around to all the monks' lodgings and said, Come, reverend sirs, come, for today the Venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in the, in the presence of the Blessed One. The Venerable Sariputta approached the Buddha, and after bowing to him, sat down to one side 
And when he was seated, the Buddha said, one of your fellow monks here has complained that you hit him and left on your journey without an apology. The Venerable Sariputta responded, Lord, I remember the discourse you gave 12 years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula, Bhikkhu Rahula, the Buddha's son, when he was 18 years old. You taught him to contemplate the nature of earth, water, fire, and air in order to nourish and develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Although your teaching was directed towards Rahula, I also learned from it. I have practiced and observed that teaching. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body in the actions of the body, and is not present, may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. Lord, I have practiced like the earth. Whether people throw clean substances such as flowers, perfume, fresh milk, or fresh milk upon the earth, the earth has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility, without ill will. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body is not present and is not present may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. But it is not my way to be rude to a fellow monk, hit him and walk on without apologizing. Lord, I have practiced like the water. People use water to wash things clean and unclean. And with all that, the water, the water has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like water, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility, and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry. I'm not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire. Fire burns things pure and impure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful. And yet for all that, the fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing, hearing, thinking might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced like the air. The air blows over things clean and unclean and carries all smells, pleasing and unpleasing. And yet for all that, the air has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the air, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body, the movements of the body in the body, in the movements of the body, the positions of the body in the positions of the body. 
the feelings in the feelings and the mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. I am not such a monk. Lord, just as an untouchable boy or girl, begging vessel in hand and clad in rags, enters a village with a humble heart. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is humble, vast, exalted, measureless, without hostility and without ill will. I have practiced and learned every day. A monk who does not practice loving kindness and mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Sariputta continued to deliver his lion's roar. At one point, the accusing monk rose from his seat, arranged his upper robe over one shoulder, and with his head on the ground, bowed at the feet of the Buddha, saying, Lord, I committed an offense when I was so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful. I accused the venerable Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. Let the Blessed One in the Sangha accept my admission of the offense and pardon me, and I shall practice restraint in the future. And the Buddha responded, Truly, monk, You committed an offense when you were so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful that you accused Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. But as you have recognized your offense and make amends, we pardon you. It's a sign of growth when one recognizes one's offense, makes amends, and in the future practices restraint. He then turned to the venerable Sariputta and said, Forgive this foolish man, Sariputta, before his head splits into seven pieces on this very spot. The Buddha did have a sense of humor, even though we we don't read it very often. (laughs) And the Venerable Sariputta responded. He said, I shall forgive him, Lord, if this revered monk also asks for my pardon, as I may not have been skillful enough and created some misunderstanding, may he, too, forgive me. And then Sariputta and the accusing monk bowed three times to each other and reconciled. That is really one of the best medicines, a very powerful medicine. Our human heart is intuitively, naturally loving. Connection and kindness are absolutely natural human capacities. And we see this sometimes in the smallest children. At one point, I was feeding one of my granddaughters when she was seven months old. I was giving her pieces of banana. She took one of the pieces from me, from my hand, and put it in my mouth. (laughs) 
with a big smile erupting on her face as she proceeded to feed me. A very innocent and pure expression of the heart of kindness. A while ago, quite a while ago now, I read a book that was about and by a 102-year-old African-American man whose name was George Dawson. He grew up on his family's farm in East Texas, and he was the grandson of slaves. At the age of eight, George had to go to work to help support his family. So he never attended school, and he never learned how to read until at the age of 98, he decided to attend a literacy program. He learned how to read at the age of 98. And then he wrote a book about himself. It's an amazing, inspiring, and illuminating book. George describes how he learned to read the world and survive in it. So I'd like to share a little bit uh, from this book this evening. At one point, George is having a conversation with Richard. Richard is the man who helped George write the book. And they're talking together about George, who at the age of 101 was still living alone. And as George says, doing just fine. Richard talking, you're not really alone. People come and call and come all day long. There's a community of people that care about you. You live by yourself, but, but no, you're not alone. George speaking. That's right. You figured that out. Yes, it's nice that people stop by like they do, but they do because they want to. I have nothing to give them. They always feel better when they leave. Richard says, that sounds like a riddle. George, it does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life, I've been good to people. In all those years, every person I met, I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard, what goes around comes around. George, that's right. It all comes back, everything you do. Sometimes it might take a while, that's all. I tell people not to worry about things, not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard, people worry too much? George, that's right. Be happy. Be happy for what you have. Help somebody instead of worrying. It'll make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't take much to make a difference. Even the poorest man can just take the time to say hello. That can be a help. Have some sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can, and if you have nothing, at least pray for somebody. Have good thoughts. The cultivation, the practice of metta is metta itself. Have good thoughts, said George. As an example of the stability and the 
beauty of a heart, a mind steeped in kind-heartedness. I'd like to continue just a little bit more with our 102-year-old Bodhisattva, George Dawson. For much of his life, George endured a very, very pervasive racism and segregation in the South growing up in East Texas. During the time that he grew up there, East Texas had the highest rate of lynchings of any state in the Union. And actually this book begins when George was eight years old as he witnessed the lynching of a teenage boy who was his hero. When George was 65, he was doing yard work for a woman who had left his lunch out on the back porch with her dogs, George speaking. She didn't see me from the shadow of the tree, but I watched as she put down two bowls on the floor for some dogs and, and, and she set up another bowl on the shelf that was above the reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf and looked at it. As hungry as I was, and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. It was from lunch for me. I was looking for a chair to sit in and a, and a quiet spot to say grace. When I looked down and saw the two dogs eating the same food that was there for me on the shelf. There wasn't such a surprise in that. People didn't buy dog food in the sack then like they do now. Dogs mostly ate leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected that I would eat out on the porch with the dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room, but back in their kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. I set the bowl back on the shelf. Being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I know she didn't plan to insult me. She just didn't know better. Still, she could believe what she wanted, but I wasn't an animal. I wasn't going to eat with the dogs. If I did, she would go on believing that way. And maybe she would have been right. Later in the afternoon, she came by and said, didn't you see the lunch that I left on the porch? I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. Thank you, said George. I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. As I said that, I looked her straight in the eye. I could tell she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face, but I didn't turn away. I didn't look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being. At my words, her face tightened and her look changed to meanness and anger. From her mother and father and back through her grandparents, I could see a hundred years of anger and fear coming out towards me. I stood up to it and repeated, I'm a human being. She was so angry, she couldn't speak. I waited. Finally, in a cold tone, she said, you don't need to come back anymore. And I said, that's right, I don't need to.
And George goes on to say, I figure you can't hate someone for what they think and do, but you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways you might react to it. In the transformation, the opening into the greatness of heart, there's a great letting go, a release, a relinquishment of much of what we've held onto, much of what we've maybe grasped very tightly. There's a great release of the contractions of the heart, the past pains, the hurts, the anguish that we've taken in and taken on as mine, as me, as I am. It's not so easy to relinquish this, this conditioning, these habituated patterns of our self. But this is what binds the heart. This is what binds the mind. Our commitment to our practice, our willingness to take the journey is what affords the transformation. And it's not so easy at times, but it's very, very well worth it. There's a fullness of energy and a confident way to walk our human path when the feeling of loving kindness is strong. The Buddha called this tremendous fullness of energy, the lion's roar. He said that when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle because the power behind his words was born out of loving care and great compassion. In closing the talk this evening, I'd like to share a story with you about a young Native American woman named Sue Ann Big Crow. Sue Ann was born on March 15th in 1974 on the Pine Ridge Reservation. She grew up with her sisters and her mother uh, in her mother's three bedroom house on the reservation. Sue Ann's mother, Chick Big Crow, was known to be quite a strict mother. Her daughters always had to be in the house or, or in the yard by the time the streetlights came on. The only after school activities she let them take part in were structured and the structured and chaperoned kind. Unsupervised wandering and later cruising around in cars were completely out. So Anne said that she and her sisters had to come up with their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. Chick Big Crow was strongly anti-drug and anti-alcohol, belonging to the small but very adamant minority on the reservation that takes that stance. When Sue Ann was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on New Year's Eve when the, mother, when the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything. So Sue Ann called the ambulance and the police and cared for her godmother until other grown-ups arrived. Perhaps because of this incident, Sue Ann became as opposed to drugs and alcohol as her mother was. She gave talks on the subject to school and youth groups and even made a video 
urging her message. Raul Bradford, a former Pine Ridge teacher and coach, who was also a friend of the Big Crow family, was once asked whether Sue Ann's public advocacy on this issue wasn't risky, given the prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. You have to understand, Raul said, Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. She was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. As strongly as Sue Ann's mother forbade certain activities, she encouraged her daughters in sports. And at one time or another, they did, did them all, cross-country running and track and volleyball, cheerleading, softball, and basketball. When Sue Ann was in the fifth grade, she heard somewhere that to improve your dribbling, you should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand. Well, she performed this daily exercise faithfully on the cement floor of the patio. Her mother and her sisters getting very tired of the sound so and complained about it. So for, so for variety, she would shoot layups against the gutter and the drain pipe until they came loose from the house and had to be repaired. Some people who live in cities and towns near Indian reservations treat their Indian neighbors decently. Some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians unapologetically and will tell you why. And in their voice, you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. When teams from Pine Ridge play non-Indian teams, the question of race is always there. When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, usually the hosts are courteous and the players and fans have a good time. But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally at away games, their kids will be insulted. Their fans will feel unwelcome. And the host gym will be dense with hostility. And the referees will call fouls on Indian players every chance they get. Sometimes in a game between Indian and non-Indian teams, difference in race becomes an important and distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams used to get harassed regularly was the high school gymnasium in Leed, South Dakota. In the fall of 1988, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes went to uh, Leed to play a basketball game. And Sue Ann was a full member of the team by then. She was a freshman, 14 years old. Getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the lead fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries. The usual plan for the pregame warmup was for the visiting team to run onto the court in a line, take a lap or two around the floor, shoot some baskets, and then go to their bench at courtside. And then after that, the home team would come out and do the same, and then the game would begin. Usually, the Lady Thorpes lined up for their entry more or less according to height, which meant that senior Donnie Decor, was the, who was the, one of the tallest, always went first. As the team waited in the hallway leading from the locker room, the heckling got louder. Some fans were waving food stamps, reference 
to the reservations receiving federal aid. Others yelled, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get some commodity cheese. The lead high school band had joined in with a fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. Sue Ann quickly offered to go first in her place. She was so eager that Donnie became suspicious and said, don't embarrass us, Sue Ann. Sue Ann said, I won't, I won't embarrass you. So Donnie gave her the ball and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running onto the court, dribbling the basketball with her teammates running behind. On the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and then suddenly stopped when she got to center court. Her teammates were taken by surprise and some of them bumped into each other. Sue Ann turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her the ball. Then she stepped into the jump ball cir circle at center court, facing the lead fans. She unbuttoned her warm-up jacket, took it off and draped it over her shoulder and began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Sue Ann knew all of the traditional dances. She had competed in many powwows as a little girl. And the dance she chose was a young woman's dance, graceful and modest and show-offy all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like get down, said Donnie DeCorey. And then Sue Ann started to sing. And she began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance, using her warm-up jacket for a shawl. The crowd went completely silent. All that stuff, the lead fans were yelling. It was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate said. In the sudden quiet, all they could hear was her Lakota song. Then Sue Ann dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie DeCorey, and ran a lap around the court, dribbling expertly and fast. And the audience began to cheer and applaud. She sprinted up to the basket, went, in the air, went up in the air, and laid the ball through the hoop, with the fans cheering loudly now. And of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. The person who transmitted this story said that he couldn't find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at center court in the gym in lead. And I agree, this was Sue Ann's lion's roar. in a short poem from Hafiz called The Sun Never Says. Even after all this time, 
The sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look at what happens with a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. The real results of practice often come as a surprise. You encounter a difficult situation. Do what seems to come naturally. And then after the fact, realize that you handled the situation quite differently from the way you used to. The natural effortless expression of a clearly focused mindful awareness loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity is the true result. At the time, what you do seems perfectly natural. It's no big deal, you might say to a friend who asks how you were able to stay present and do what needed to be done. But it is a big deal because the natural expression of these qualities changes your life and it changes the lives of everyone who you encounter. In closing the talk this evening with an excerpt from obviously one of my favorite poets, Mary Oliver. This is an excerpt from her poem called To Begin With the Sweet Grass. What I loved in the beginning, I think, was mostly myself. Never mind that I had to, since somebody had to. That was many years ago. Since then, I have gone out from my confinements, through with difficulty. I mean, the ones that thought to rule my heart, I cast them out. I put them on the mush pile. They will be nourishment somehow. Everything is nourishment somehow or other. And I have become the child of the clouds and of hope. I have become the friend of the enemy, whoever that is. I have become older and cherishing what I have learned. I have become younger. And what do I risk to tell you this, which is all I know? Love yourself. Then forget it. Then love the world. And let's sit quietly for just a few moments.
Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. And thank you for your practice. May all of the wholesome energies that have manifested through this day's practice serve with immeasurable impartiality, without bias, without prejudice, towards the welfare, the happiness, and the awakening of all beings everywhere. And as usual, we'll close the Dhamma talk evening, part of the evening, chanting the refuge. I'm not, we did that already. <laughs> chanting the sharing of blessings. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death. May those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana, in every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support through the supreme power of all these. May darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.